When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. One. But I'm working out. I love to listen to your podcast. Whenever you say something, other people react to it. Taking my breath away, Aaron. Fern Lundquist joins me. Hall of Famer Jim Calhoun. NASCAR icon Dale Earnhardt Jr. Kirk Herbstreet is on the phone. Episode 7. Oh, another podcast. The Air Sports Podcast presented. By Betfred Sportsbook, it is Wednesday, May 17, 2023. People, I hope everybody's doing well. I hope everybody is having a great day. And I know I've said it quite a bit over the last month or so, but midweek shows in May are not supposed to be this jam-packed. Yet here we are with a loaded midweek episode of the Aaron Torres Pod. Here's what you need to know about today's show. We're going to open with the bombshell report courtesy of Ross Dellinger, Sports Illustrated. He basically laid out a picture of a very fractured college sports right now with the ACC in shambles behind the scenes, the Pac-12 in shambles behind the scenes, the Big 12 trying to poach just about everybody. Big 12 is basically that guy at the bar at last call just flirting with everybody trying to get somebody to come home with them. That is the Big 12 right now, but it is a fascinating report. We're going to break it all down. And I'm going to share what I think is going to happen over these next few months and these next few years in college sports. By the way, little whisper about UConn of the Big 12. Said it on the show a few weeks ago if you were paying close attention. That was in Ross Dellinger's report as well. From there, we'll take a quick break. Come back. Victor Wenbanyama may have heard of him. He will be the number one prospect in the 2023 NBA draft in a few weeks. And with the NBA draft lottery on Tuesday night, we now know where he's going. We're going to discuss that. And then finally, we will wrap Ron Holland, number one high school basketball player in the class of 2023. A few weeks ago, he decommitted from Texas, yet it's been eerily quiet. And recently, we found out why. Fun show, loaded show, jam-packed show. So without any further ado, let's not waste any more time and let's get to the topic of the day. And the topic of the day, listen, it is essentially the topic that never really ends in college sports, and that is conference realignment. I've been following college sports for probably 30 years at this point, and it is an ever-evolving, ever-present topic in college sports. But it really has, over the past two off-seasons, really picked up steam. Specifically, when Texas and Oklahoma left for the SEC, That led to one wild round of rumors and innuendo and this and that. 
And then, of course, it was heightened even more last offseason when we found out that UCLA and USC were headed to the Big Ten. And so what I have said over the past couple of years is that it is now basically a land grab where everybody that is not in one of those two conferences is doing everything they can to get into one of those two conferences or at the very least find stable footing. We've discussed it a number of times, but what I would also say is it has never been put on paper, I don't believe, as well as it has until Monday when Ross Dellinger from Sports Illustrated, who actually was on this podcast one time, uh, Ross Dellinger put out a very extensive report for Sports Illustrated explaining the landscape of college sports. And let me tell you, it just isn't pretty. So I want to hit on everything that came out of that article. And what I want to start with is probably the most interesting part of that article, which is the present and future of the ACC. We actually talked about this a few months back. I remember an episode in February. It stemmed from a conversation that kind of leaked out. It was sort of public, but it sort of wasn't, where Florida State's school president, a guy by the name of Michael Alford, basically said, listen, this is not sustainable for us in this league. And so behind the scenes, you kind of knew stuff wasn't going well. But then we found out via the Ross Dellinger report that there are now seven schools that have been meeting privately that are basically trying to figure out what are our options outside of this conference or at the very least outside of the TV contract. Those seven schools, by the way, on Monday afternoon by Brett McMurphy were reported. This was not in the Ross Dellinger report. In the Brett McMurphy report, uh, it was the seven schools are Florida State, Clemson, Miami, North Carolina, NC State, Virginia Tech, and Virginia. Those are the seven schools that are kind of trying to see, hey, what's going on? What could we potentially uh, get out of this current situation? So really, the situation with the ACC, those seven schools are trying to get out. And what it really stems from is basically pretty straightforward and something we've talked about before. They got themselves a really bad TV deal. So the ACC TV deal is bad in two ways. One, doesn't pay them very much. Pays them $30 million a year. By the end, it'll be up to about 40, 41, 42 million. There's just one problem. 30 to 35 million a year per school sounds great to a lot of places, but compared to the schools they're competing with in the SEC and the Big Ten, that's about $30 million a year less than what Georgia and Ohio State and Michigan and Penn State and whoever are making. And by the way, it's not just one year, it's every year. So every year, say if you're Clemson, South Carolina is making 30 million more than you in 2023, and then 30 more in 2024, and then 30 more in 2025. And so the Clemsons and Florida States, the big football powers are starting to get worried. Beyond that, this is where it gets really tough, is that the ACC contract is set to run through 2036, 2036. So keep that in mind, because again, you're falling behind 30 to 40 million a year now. But the Big Ten is going to renegotiate its TV contract in seven years. The Big 12 is going to renegotiate its TV contract before the ACC comes up again. So you can imagine how far they're going to fall behind by 2036. When I tell you this is the worst deal since the Louisiana Purchase, I'm pretty sure the ACC TV contract is the worst deal since the Louisiana Purchase. So I bring all this up to say the ACC, the the top seven schools, The seven schools that I would argue are probably most committed to football. 
They're frustrated. They're trying to figure out what's next. And really, not just from this article, but in the bigger picture, there's really two avenues that those seven schools are looking to explore in terms of either making more money or getting out of the contract. The way that the, the these seven schools are trying to figure things out, one of two options. They're either going to try to get out of the league or they are trying to get, going to try to get an uneven pay scale in the league. In other words, Florida State will make more than Boston College. Uh, Clemson will make more than Pitt, etc. Here's the problem. I don't think either one of them is a very good option. In terms of just trying to flat get out of the contract, good luck. And here's why. It's because if you remember, and you, you might not, you probably don't, but from literally the day that Texas and Oklahoma left the, the the announced they were leaving the Big 12 for the SEC, I said it and I'm positive of it. There are schools in this ACC. There are schools in other parts of the country. They're trying to get out of their TV contract. So it's not just a last two or three weeks thing that Florida State and Clemson and Miami and NC State and UNC have been trying to get out of this contract with the ACC. I believe we're closing in on close to two years now that they're trying to figure out a way to get out of it. The contract is called a grant of rights. And what the contract that the grant of rights is basically, let me let me rephrase. I'm tripping over my words here. The grant of rights, what it basically says is this. All these 15 schools in the ACC have basically agreed to this grant of rights. I think it's 14 because Notre Dame's a basketball or it's a non-football school. But the 14 schools in the ACC, what the grant of rights basically says is this. The ACC owns the rights to broadcast their home sporting events, football specifically in this case. And so why it seems like it's going to be pretty tough to get out of this is one, their lawyers have been trying for years. And two, even if they were able to pay a fee or get out or do whatever, the ACC would still, in theory, own their TV rights. And so Clemson can leave tomorrow. Florida State can leave tomorrow. But it's uncertain if they would be able to broadcast their TV games, their games on TV, their home games anyway. And so because of it, hate to say it, don't think Florida State has much value to the SEC. Don't think UNC has much value to the SEC or the Big Ten if you can't broadcast their home football games, their home basketball games or whatever. So because of it, I don't think they're getting out of the grant of rights, at least not anytime soon. Now, at some point, could they pay some exorbitant fee to get out? I think it's possible. But listen, Texas and Oklahoma paid $50 million to get out of their grant of rights with the Big 12 a year ahead of schedule. And the Big 12 agreed to it and was ready to move on. We're talking about 13 more years, 13 more years of this grant of rights. So it's not going to happen anytime soon. Because of it, I don't see the scenario where they have much success getting out of this contract. Although, again, the lawyers are going to try, but it leads to a second situation with the grant of rights uh, or with the ACC. And that second situation is this. From there, they are going to try to push for an uneven distribution model. And this is something that we have talked about before. But in February, there was a big report the commissioner, or, or excuse me, the president of Florida State, he basically went on record and said, look, this is not sustainable. And we don't think, frankly, it's even fair to us. It's not fair to us because we make way more revenue for this conference than most everybody else. The number that he pegged based on TV ratings, based on the number of games that got this many viewers, I believe the number was like 7 million or 5 million or something viewers. 
Florida State's AD basically said, look, we make 15% of the revenue for this entire conference, yet we're getting paid the same amount as Boston College and Pitt and Syracuse. That has to change. And so on the one hand, that feels more feasible to me than just breaking the contract. I don't think that's really in the cards. The problem becomes, and we talked about this a few months ago, why would Pitt or Boston College or Wake Forest or Syracuse agree to an uneven distribution model? Even if Clemson and Florida State are making a disproportional amount of money for the conference, why would Boston College or Syracuse agree? Because at the end of the day, one, it doesn't really help them. Boston College and Wake Forest can look North Carolina and Clemson and whoever in the eye and say, you agreed to this deal. You already have the advantage of the bigger fan base, the bigger alumni base, the more aggressive boosters. Now we're going to give you more money on top of that? Sorry, you agreed to this deal. We were all in this together when we signed it. So that's one. And then two, think about it from like Boston College's perspective or Syracuse's perspective. Besides the fact that it's just giving away more money, it also doesn't guarantee that Clemson or Florida State is going to stay beyond 2036. So if I'm Boston College or I'm Syracuse or I'm whatever, I just say, sorry, we're riding this thing out as long as we can. Because even if we agree to give you more money, all you're going to do is take our money and then go to the SEC the second that you can get out of this, this, this deal. So I don't want to keep going on with this ACC thing, but it's going to be a fascinating story to watch unfold over these next couple months, couple years, because clearly these seven schools are not happy. But I'm also not positive that there's a way out. And so if I had to guess, I think the ACC, I think it's going to be business as usual because I just don't see the scenario where they can get out. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here as in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as uh, simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Let's keep it going, and let's get to the tango between the Big 12 and the Pac-12. Okay, so this is like the story that won't die. I know I've used the Undertaker GIF reference a few times, but every time you think this story is dead, it just keeps on coming back and coming back and coming back. And the crux of the story is pretty straightforward, right? It is that the Pac-12 lost USC and UCLA a year ago. The Pac-12 their current TV deal expires in 2024. And so the PAC 12 has basically been for years now trying to close this TV deal. And then obviously the economics changed quite a bit when USC and UCLA left. And so it's this weird song and dance where the PAC 12 schools aren't really ready to commit to each other, but they're not really ready to leave for anywhere else. And everybody's kind of trying to talk about unity 
while also looking to see what else, what other options are out there. Oregon and Washington publicly flirting with the Big Ten, trying to get the Big Ten to notice them, to use the bad bar reference. Oregon and Washington are the girl, the, the guys at the bar trying to get the cute girl to get them to notice them, and the, the cute girl's just like, sorry, dude, no, no, thank you. Meanwhile, those four corner schools, Arizona, Arizona State, Colorado, and Utah, they're sort of flirting with the Big 12. They're sort of saying, hey, you know, we're not ready to go through with this divorce yet, but keep our number and let's see what happens. In other words, take my number, call me in about two months. Right now, I'm happy with with my marriage situation, but give another two, three months, we might see. And so it's this weird just song and dance where the Pac-12 publicly is saying all the right things. We're in this together. We're working towards a TV deal because, again, this is the important thing with the Pac-12. While the ACC's TV deal ends sometime, you know, aliens are going to have taken over by the time the ACC deal ends, the Pac-12's TV deal ends literally a year from now and they have nothing in place. The problem for the Pac-12 is basically the problem that they've had all along. One, they can't get anybody to commit. But two, the real the real problem just comes down to finding a distributor for their content, for their, for their games, right? And the problem becomes pretty straightforward. One, it feels like most of the major networks are just like, no thanks, I'm out. ESPN is financially invested in the SEC, the ACC, and the Big 12. Fox is committed to the Big 10 and the Big 12 in the Mountain West. Uh, CBS is committed to the Big 10 and the Mountain West. NBC to the Big 10 and Notre Dame. So everybody's money's already spread thin. And so the Pac-12 is trying to work with some alternative, you know, programming the CW has been mentioned. I think we talked about Ion TV at some point. And then there's also the alternative of streaming. But the problem with streaming is the Pac-12, I believe, and it's not even I believe, I, I know this for a fact, they're getting pushback from their school presidents and their athletic directors in that we're okay with an idea of some streaming. But we don't want to be exclusively streaming or we don't want to be the majority of our games on streaming. And it's just basically a, 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 you know, a simple logistical thing. Just think about it, right? Is that it's one thing if Amazon has one Thursday night football game a, a week. But imagine if Amazon took like a, a single game on a Sunday and you're trying to flip back between CBS and, and, and Fox and, and Red Zone and now you've got to flip on Amazon too. It gets complicated, and so that's where the Pac-12 is getting held up. Even if one of these streaming partners comes in with a lot of money, is it going to be enough money that it makes it worthwhile to put most of their games essentially behind a paywall? Behind a paywall for people that have a normal cable TV system, and it gets complicated, and that's where I think the Pac-12 is being held up. The major networks are playing hardball. And the streamers are interesting, but does the Pac-12 want to be the first major league, at least in sports, in college sports, to have all of its games on a stream? And so, again, it's this weird song and dance. And I'll be honest, while I think the ACC is kind of stuck and they can't really do anything, I think the Pac-12 is the exact opposite. I think the Pac-12 is in big trouble. A couple reasons why. One, first of all, I, I don't think they're going to get the TV deal that they want. I know I've talked about it before. But we are now closing in on what? We are closing in on a year since USC and UCLA left. If the TV money was there, they would have gotten it by now. I don't believe that that money is there. 
Beyond that, I also think I'm the only one that's saying this and I don't get it. I think that it's worth noting that the Big 12 or excuse me, that ESPN and that Fox both have a contract with the Big 12. I think that's important for the obvious reason of the two biggest players in this space, ESPN and Fox. It incentivizes them to make the Big 12 as strong as it possibly can. How do you incentivize them? You get those corner schools that you want. You get maybe Oregon and Washington to commit. And then he's push everybody else to the side. Then you don't have to pay for the Pac-12 and you get the schools that you want in the Big 12. On top of that, it's also worth noting the Big 12 looking to expand West, which would give that extra TV window of that late 10 p.m. game. So I'm going on and on. I, I, I need to get to break here. But those are the two big storylines. I I don't think the ACC can do anything. I do think the Pac-12 is in trouble. There were two other interesting nuggets from that conference that I from that article that I want to discuss. One, as I've told you many times, I don't think the SEC and the Big Ten are expanding right now. Okay, and this goes back to there was a part in the article where they said that the Big Ten did kick the tires on Oregon and Washington, but that essentially the TV people were like, we're not paying for Oregon and Washington. And so I keep hearing this from all these people that are supposed to know what they're talking about. What I keep saying is the only way that the Big Ten or the SEC is going to expand is if new schools can bring more revenue to their TV contracts. And right now, outside of Notre Dame or maybe some of those ACC schools, Clemson, North Carolina, Florida State, those schools and those brands don't exist. So stop telling me that Oregon and Washington are a done deal. And I saw another report, oh, they've been vetted and they've been this and they've been that. Until you can prove to me that those schools bring more money to a TV deal, I don't buy that they're going to the Big Ten. Now, maybe it gets to the point, and Dellinger's article did say this, is that maybe it does get to a point where maybe, just maybe, the Pac-12 breaks up and they get enough money from the Big Ten where they take a percentage of, they don't get the full share, basically. Then could it happen? Absolutely. But right now, I don't think Oregon and Washington, I don't think the Big Ten wants them. Finally, and I got this question about four or five times via DM. There was a reference to the Big 12 and UConn having conversations. Now, first of all, I would say this. If you listen to this podcast from beginning to end, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. I actually kind of hinted this about two, three weeks ago. It was when the Big 12 said they planned on playing games in Mexico. And I talked about all the different initiatives the Big 12 is is looking at. And one thing I said was expansion, the four corner schools. And I said, oh, by the way, there's whispers that they've been in conversation with UConn. And so I told you two, three weeks ago that this could potentially happen. And now it came to light in this Ross Dellinger article. A lot of you have asked what I think about it, and let me just say this. In terms of UConn potentially leaving the Big East again for a conference in the Midwest again, or really the Southwest, I'll just say I'm I'm pretty torn, okay? So what I would say is I'm pretty torn about the idea of UConn leaving for the obvious reasons. On the one hand, I hate it. Because guess what? About 10 years ago, UConn decided to leave the Big East for another conference based on football. It was called the AAC, and it was a complete disaster. And it almost killed their athletic department. So I hate the idea of UConn leaving the Big East 
to go to another conference that geographically doesn't make sense to try to help the football program. And I love football. I love UConn football. Love Jim Moore. He's been on this podcast. He's a great guy. But I'm not crazy about it. And I'm not crazy about UConn joining the ACC either. You know why? Because all the good schools are trying to get out of the ACC. And so is there going to be that much more money in the ACC in 10 years if Florida State and Clemson and Miami and all them are gone? The second thing, though, while I don't love the idea of UConn to the Big 12, I'd also say I do sort of get it. Because while I hate the geography and I hate tearing up the Big East again, what I would also say is it's a bottom line, money-driven business. And I don't know for UConn as a whole if they can stay relevant staying in the Big East the way that they want to stay relevant. UConn is pretty much good at every sport other than football, okay? National championship in men's basketball. Women's basketball speaks for itself. Baseball is in the top 20 nationally right now. Men's ice hockey, you go on and on down the list. Well, you know what it, you, you know what you, you need to keep operating at a really high level in every sport? Money, lots of it, and that's where I get tripped up with UConn. I don't know that UConn can maintain its across-the-board success on whatever the Big East TV contract currently is. I was told it's somewhere like $8, 10 $12 million. So think about it. All these ACC schools are saying, we can't get by on 30 whatever million a year. UConn's potentially making like a third of that in the Big East, which obviously is not a football-driven conference. There is no Big East football. And so it becomes a bottom-line thing for UConn. Do you risk staying in this conference and being at a financial disadvantage going forward? Because guess what? At some point in the near future, Dan Hurley is going to get a really big raise. And I don't know what that raise is, but my guess is he's going to be due like six, you know, probably like a $6 million a year head coach. That's kind of the going rate for a national championship caliber head coach. Baseball, Jim Penders just got a raise. Gino Oriem is obviously very highly paid. So you got to have a way to pay for all this. And if you don't join the Big 12 or another power conference, then you potentially risk falling behind financially, and losing those elite coaches. Obviously, Gino Oriem is not going anywhere, but I'll just say really quick, I had somebody bring this up to me. What if John Calipari retires after next year? What if John Calipari, like this is just a hypothetical, right? But what if like Kentucky has another really bad year and John Calipari is basically forced into retirement? Kentucky's in the SEC. Kentucky can offer whoever they believe is the best coach available pretty much any money that they want. And let's say Kentucky thinks that Dan Hurley is the best coach available, and that's the guy that they really want. They can offer some staggering amount of money that UConn simply can't match. And so that's why I understand the idea of going to the ACC, or the Big 12, excuse me. I don't love it, but I do think it's something that needs to be considered. It's something I know is being considered, and I'll be curious what the next steps are. All right, that's what I'm going to do. That was a long segment. Whew. I'm going to take a quick break. I'm going to come back. And when I come back, we're talking Victor Wenbanyama. That is right. The elite, elite, elite draft talent. Some say the best prospect since LeBron. Some say the best prospect ever. NBA Draft Lottery was Tuesday. We now know where he's going. Going to take a quick break. Discuss all of that next. All right, we're getting back to the show in a minute. But before we do... I want to welcome back our presenting sponsor, Betfred Sportsbook, in the Betfred Sportsbook app. The NBA playoffs are here, and nobody has you covered quite like Betfred. 
By now, you know Betfred's story. Started in 1967 in the UK. Over 1,200 shops in the UK. They have since come to the United States and made a major splash. They are not only the presenting sponsor of the Aaron Torres podcast and all things Aaron Torres media, but also the Cincinnati Bengals, the Colorado Rockies, the Denver Broncos. And what I love about Betfred Sportsbook is that nobody takes care of their customers quite like Betfred. You've seen the Betfred Sportsbook suite at Bengals games. It is hopping. We have sent listeners of this show to Denver Broncos VIP tailgates. Betfred betters have thrown out first pitches at Colorado Rockies games. Again, nobody takes care of you like Betfred Sportsbook does. And here is what they are doing for the NBA playoffs. How about this for a deal? Bet $50 on any game, all playoffs long, get up to $1,111 in free bets. Here's how it works. Download the Betfred Sportsbook app, bet $50 on any game. You automatically get $111 in free bets. But beyond that, here is what else Betfred does for you. They're going to give you up to $200 in insurance for the first five weeks that you're a Betfred customer. So, Maybe you make a bad pick. We all do. We've all been there. Trust me. You followed my picks in March Madness. It happens. So you bet 200. Doesn't work out. Get 200 insurance for the first five weeks that you are a Betfred customer, equating up to $1,111 in free bets thanks to Betfred. Again, nobody takes care of you like Betfred does. Love working with them. They are the presenting sponsor of the Aaron Torres pod. Tell them Torres sent you. Download the Betfred Sportsbook app right now. All right, everybody. Hi, back. Good to be back. Good to be back. Do want to switch gears. And, and I want to talk about what was actually probably the biggest story in all of sports on Tuesday. Obviously, the, the realignment stuff is huge. That's why we led the show with it. There's a lot of layers to it. But beyond that, Tuesday was a very important day in, in the really the entire sports ecosystem because it was the day of the 2023 NBA draft lottery. Now, I think it's worth noting that it's not really about the draft lottery, but instead what the prize is at the top of this NBA draft. That is because, of course, the 2023 NBA draft features Victor Wenbanyama, who I think most people kind of know is regarded as literally at worst the best prospect since LeBron James. And some say, I saw Adrian Wojnarowski say this, that he might be the most coveted prospect in the history of team sports. Seven foot five center, big, tall, athletic, can shoot, can handle the ball, best defensive player on the floor. And somebody was going to get the rights to draft him. The top five, Detroit, Houston, Charlotte, San Antonio, and Portland. And it is, drumroll please, the San Antonio Spurs, who have earned the right to draft Victor Wenbanyama, number one overall at the upcoming NBA draft. So let's talk about it. Let's break it down because I think there's actually a lot to discuss. But I'm going to start not really in the place that I planned on because I, I figured if the Pistons got him or the Hornets got him, whatever. But because it's the Spurs, Oh, we got to talk about that because listen, you talk about the luck of the Irish. How about the luck of the spur San Antonio in its organization's history has won three NBA draft lotteries. First of all, that's not bad. The draft lottery started in 1985. So we're going on year 38. They have won one out of essentially every 10 and a half or so of them. That's not bad. It's especially not bad considering that they very rarely drafted in the lottery. 
but it's also not bad because for the third time they win the draft lottery in a year where there is a generational talent at center. 1987, David Robinson is coming out of Navy. David Robinson turns into an NBA 10-time All-Star, an Olympian, an NBA MVP in 1995, and oh, by the way, helped the San Antonio Spurs to multiple NBA championships. Oh, how about this? A decade later, 1997, no big deal, but I would argue the best big man prospect since, you know, Victor Wenbanyama might be the best big man prospect since 1997 when Tim Duncan was available in the draft. If I remember correctly, the Celtics ended up with two of the top six picks, but it was the San Antonio Spurs who, by the way, had one bad year because David Robinson got hurt, who ended up winning the draft lottery. And so now, so now, 26 years after winning the Tim Duncan lottery to win, win the Victor Wenbanyama lottery, I can't think of a better stroke of luck anywhere than that. And I'll also say this, that retirement home that Greg Popovich was planning on, uh, you know, maybe passing his time in over these next couple of years. I can't imagine this guy is going anywhere. And from the Spurs perspective, let me say this, is that we're going to get into some of the positives and negatives of Wenbanyama, okay, in a minute. But I am happy that a generational prospect is getting to go to a well-run organization. Let me explain. Bottom line is, listen, we know how the draft is structured. And the truth is, is that like most of the time, the reason a team is picking in the lottery is because they're dysfunctional. Bad ownership, bad front office, bad GM, bad whatever, okay? And so there are so many great prospects through the years that just never got into the right situation or got drafted by the wrong place and had to, you know, LeBron James, you could criticize him for whatever, but Cleveland was dysfunctional. He had to leave to, 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 to reach his ultimate goals to then come back to leave Cleveland to a championship. Anthony Davis, they never found the second star for him in new Orleans. He ends up having to leave, you know, football. We see it all the time with these quarterbacks that just get put in bad situations. They never have a real chance to succeed. So for Wenbanyama to go to a well-run organization with good, smart people in the front office, a Hall of Fame head coach, I think that's a great, great, great situation for him. And I think it will best allow him to reach his potential in a way that, let's be honest, if he had gone to Houston, which is a mess right now, if he had gone to Charlotte, which frankly hasn't been relevant in forever, it's just a different deal. At the same time, though, I, I do want to say this. And what I want to say is pretty straightforward, is that while a couple things, one, I am by no means rooting against Victor Wenbanyama. I am by no means rooting for the worst for Victor Wenbanyama. I do think we have to have an honest conversation because while I do think, I, I, I do understand the concept of why he is as highly regarded and as can't miss as possible. I think we also have to look at the history of the NBA the current context of the NBA and ask if this guy is like really going to reach his potential. Now, on the one hand, if he reaches his potential, I mean, we're talking about all time. Great. As I said, a minute ago, seven foot five, and that's not hyperbole. Jonathan Gavoni from ESPN spent time with him in France in the winter and said he measured seven foot four without shoes, seven foot five with shoes, seven foot five can handle the ball, can shoot the ball. Good distributor elite defensive player, and he, it isn't hyperbole to say he does stuff that has never been done on the floor before. 
I've seen video. I've seen highlights of him missing a three-point shot, running in and taking two steps, grabbing it and dunking it out of midair. He is in, he has the chance to be an elite rim protector. And I don't, again, I don't think it's hyperbole to say like, if it clicks right situation, which it appears to be with San Antonio injury, whatever you're able to avoid major injuries, you're able to develop and add weight and do what you need to do. I mean, this guy could be a seven foot five Giannis. That's a better three point shooter. I mean, think about that. Add like six inches to Giannis plus allow him to shoot threes. That is what Victor Wembanyama's upside is. I guess my concern, and I do think it's worth discussing is like, is it really realistic to think that Victor Wembanyama is going to reach that upside? And again, I want to be clear. I'm not rooting against him. I don't want to see him fail. I certainly don't want to see any injuries. But if we're going to have a big boy conversation about Victor Wembanyama, we have to talk facts. And the facts are that you go throughout history, there really isn't an example of a guy his size coming into the league at his age and having a long, fruitful career in which he reaches his full potential. There have been seven-footers, different guys, whatever. But most of them, unfortunately, it does not work out, and, and a lot of it has to do with injuries. For for you know, for the sake of this argument, I will say, your boy Torres actually did a little bit of homework last t- today. And it is shocking to see, like, like some of the guys that we consider the big, you know, the, the, the guy, the bigger guys, the, 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 the centers that have dealt with injuries. When you look through their careers, it's shocking how short-lived, just, it, it doesn't work out well. Okay. Here's some research that I did throughout the day on Tuesday, knowing that I was going to be talking about Victor Wimbanyama tonight. Okay. So Yao Ming. How about this? Yao Ming, seven foot five, number one pick in the 2002 NBA draft. Played under 500 games in his career. After the age of 25, and he didn't come to the NBA until he was 21 years old. So after the age of 25, he played more than 60 games just once in his career. And he came three years later than when Banyama's come, or two years later at least. After 25, played 60 games just once. Greg Oden played more than 60 games once in his career, was out of the NBA by 26. Bill Walton, best season, came at 25 years old. And remember, he played four years of college basketball. He came into the league at 22 years old. His best season was 25. Never, he played, uh, he was never the same after about 25, 26. Ralph Sampson, very similar. Missed three games total his first three years. Never played more than 50 games after his first three years and was out of league by 31. Chris Stapps Porzingis, who's seven foot three, most games played was his rookie year. Although, on a positive note, he did play 65 games this year. So, I'm going in a lot of different directions. But I guess what I would just say is that while I get the hype, and I'm certainly not saying San Antonio should trade the pick or draft somebody else, what I am saying is, there really is no historical precedent for a guy this big staying this healthy for this long. I hope I'm wrong. I hope I'm wrong, but I have to have an honest conversation about the Victor Wimbanyama situation. Beyond that, and this is something else I was thinking about. All those guys, they all played in the pre-load management era. Now, I think a lot of people would say, well, load management might have helped Yao Ming, might have helped Greg Oden. Maybe it would have, maybe it wouldn't have. But I think you can argue it's the exact opposite. I think if you can argue, you're expecting a seven foot five guy in this era of NBA basketball with load management 
what is realistic to expect him to play? Because we know with his body and his frame and his this and his that, like the second anything goes wrong, you're going to shut him down for a week, 10 days, two weeks, two months. I know it's a completely different situation, but when Zion Williamson gets hurt, he misses months at a time. And I know he's, he's probably the opposite of one Banyama. He, he's carrying too much weight. But again, it's the thought of the team doctors being overly concerned, the team doctors being overly careful. And so what is the ceiling when you have Victor Wembanyama? Like how many games is realistic in this era of the NBA? I think in a good year, you're looking at 60 because that's about what the stars play. And in a bad year, you're looking at much, much, much less. So it'll be interesting to see. Now, I will say the positive is one good organization, as I said, two, when Binyama has been working with these doctors for years to put himself in the best position to have a long, long NBA career. Uh, if you read the Gavoni piece, they did a very lengthy uh, write-up about his stretching routine, and he does these extensive stretches without shoes on to start the game. So I'm rooting for this kid. I am. This isn't an anti-Victor Wimbanyama thing. I do think it's worth asking, though, can he stay healthy over an NBA career and all that good stuff? I will say, by the way, we're going to start doing NBA draft profiles on the College Hoops Daily podcast feed uh, with Aaron Torres Sports Media. So for people who don't know, uh, I own my own media company, Aaron Torres Media. We have another show called the College Hoops Daily. It's hosted by a kid named Zach Kroll, young, hungry college hoops writer, We'll be doing profiles of all the major NBA draft prospects starting later this week with Victor Wembanyama. So I encourage you to follow the College Hoops Daily podcast, subscribe. We will be previewing all the big players in the draft. Wembanyama, Brandon Miller, Anthony Black, Kaysen Wallace, Scoot Henderson, the Thompson Twins, etc. A lot of NBA draft coverage coming your way. All right, so what I want to do, do want to take a quick break. And when I come back, we will wrap with a story we've talked about quite a bit here on the Aaron Torres pod the last few weeks. That is the status of five-star Ron Holland, the number one player in the class of 2023. Asked out of his letter of of commitment from Texas, and it's been awfully quiet since. And it's kind of because of Texas. I'll explain why next. All right, everybody. Hi, back. Good to be back. Good to be back. Final segment of the show. So good to be back. And I do want to wrap. With a story that we talked about actually quite a bit before I left on vacation. And then I went on vacation and it got awfully quiet. And that is the recruitment of Ron Holland, a player many to believe to be the number one high school player in America in the class of 2023. So I think everybody kind of knows the story by now, but a quick, uh, you know, refresher for people who have uh, not been paying close attention. But Ron Holland, class of 2023. So this is a kid that's literally going to enroll in college in about a in about a month from now uh, when players return for summer school and all that. He had been committed to Texas for about seven, eight months now. I think he committed back in late September, early October, whatever. Again, a McDonald's All-American, six foot eight forward, really, really good player. What was interesting, though, was a few things is that one, he stayed committed even after Chris Beard got arrested, even after Chris Beard got fired, even after Rodney Terry got the head coaching job full time. And so for all intents and purposes, it seemed as though Ron Holland was set to go to Texas until about two weeks ago when the last weekend in April, seemingly out of nowhere, Ron Holland announces that he has decommitted from Texas and asked out of his letter of intent. 
And so as we've learned all spring, usually these things get resolved pretty quick or, or, or things start to move, right? At the very least, when a player opens up his recruitment, you hear of a list of schools that have reached out, you hear a visit set up, and of course, you ultimately hear about a commitment. Well, we we saw a list uh, shortly after he decommitted. Now, I will say, I said the day that he decommitted, I said it's probably going to be either Arkansas or the G League Ignite professional route. Everybody followed my lead two, three days later and said, oh, it's Arkansas or G League Ignite. It's like, yeah, you follow Torres. He told you that back up, you know, the day that Ron Holland decommitted. Neither here nor there. But I bring it up to say that the Holland recruitment has been very quiet since he decommitted. We got a, a short list the day after. Uh, we saw a picture of him working out with Jordan Walsh, the Arkansas Razorbacks player that's currently testing the NBA draft waters. But it's been very quiet. I think a lot of people are wondering why. Well, if you're watching this video, I think you probably know, or if you're listening on, on the podcast, you probably know by now, we got a report late last week that started to shed light on what is taking so long and why there is literally or seemingly no movement in Ron Holland's recruitment. It came from 24, Horns 24-7, which is the 24-7 sports site that covers Texas. Obviously, Ron Holland was committed to Texas, and they put out a lengthy report, but this was the piece of information that you needed to know. Essentially, there's been no movement on Ron Holland's recruitment because Texas, as of right now, has not released Ron Holland from his letter of intent. In other words, schools can contact him if they want, but as of right now, he is by rule, I guess call it legally if you want. I don't know if legal is the right term, but under NCA jurisdiction, he is still technically bound to Texas. And so the question becomes, why is Texas not letting him out of his letter of intent? Well, according to the 24-7 Horns report, or Horns 24-7, excuse me, here is why. This is an exact quote from that report. It says, it doesn't sound as if Texas is trying to hold up Holland. Their administration is just making sure that there hasn't been any foul play. Hmm. What does that mean? Well, one, first of all, if it says it doesn't sound like Texas is trying to hold up Holland, I'll tell you this. It sure sounds to me like Texas is trying to hold up Holland, but I get it. It is a Texas website that is reporting this. Obviously, their information is coming from the Texas Athletic Department. But what's more interesting is that second part. They're just making sure there hasn't been any foul play. In other words, for people who can't read between the lines, they want to make sure nobody's tampering with Ron Holland and nobody tampered to get him in to a situation where he decommits from Texas and opens up his recruitment. And so that is why we have seemingly not gotten any real movement on Ron Holland's recruitment. No visits, no nothing, no this, no that. And let me just say this. I think this is a very interesting story that is very interesting to discuss from both sides. Because on the one hand, while I sort of understand why Texas is making the decisions that they are and not officially have yet let him out of his letter of intent, I also don't think this is a very good look going forward. So let's start why I get Texas. Listen, I get Texas's perspective on why they're doing this. Because if it was my school, if it was your school, if it was anybody's school, you would want your school to fight back, right? I mean, the, the most famous kind of allegation of tampering that actually got real pushback, if you remember last spring, was in football when Jordan Addison, the Bolitnikov winner, entered the transfer portal right before the deadline. And it was at that time that we immediately heard USC was the favorite. He was going to end up at USC. And Pat Narduzzi got on the phone and Pat Narduzzi was not happy. And he called out Lincoln Riley and USC, whether he had proof or not. And so I defended Pat Narduzzi at that time. And ultimately, 
I'll defend any coach that is adamant that tampering is happening and has proof and is ready to go to the NCAA. Because I do believe on the one hand, the only way to eliminate tampering is to bring it to the public light and have actual proof that something is happening. Here's where it gets a little bit complicated, though. And here is where I think Texas is being a little bit, they're just being a little bit difficult, I guess is the right word. What ended up ultimately happening with Pat Narduzzi and Jordan Addison and USC and that whole situation? Uh, yeah, absolutely nothing. And Jordan Addison played at USC last year, and he was a number or first-round pick of the Minnesota Vikings out of USC. And so I'm not saying Texas shouldn't do their due diligence. I'm not saying if they believe tampering happened that they shouldn't be upset. What I am saying is I also do think there are a lot of variables that make me say, okay, Texas, we get the point. It's time to move on. The first one is, one, we don't even know if tampering has happened. And at the same time, there are very good reasons why Ron Holland would want to decommit. I understand that he stayed committed through the firing of Chris Beard and the hiring of Rodney Terry. But what also can't be denied is that the program that he committed to in October is completely different than the one that he was set to enroll in a month from now. You look at Texas, one. Yes, they're coming off a Big 12 tournament championship. Yes, they're coming off an Elite Eight run. But listen, push comes to shove. And this is no disrespect to Rodney Terry. I went to bat for Rodney Terry and said, I thought long before it was cool to say it, that he should be named Texas head coach. But there's a difference between playing for Chris Beard, who has been to a Final Four, multiple Elite Eights, all that good stuff, and playing for Rodney Terry, who this will be his first year full-time as a Power 5, Power 6 in basketball head coach. I get Ronnie Terry. I've defended Ronnie Terry. I, I think he, he, you know, the narrative that he wasn't successful at Fresno State and UTEP, that doesn't take into consideration those are two really tough jobs. But you can't say that the situation hasn't changed, and you can't say that Ron Holland in a year where he has to prove that he's a top five pick, it's, he's allowed to have reservations. I think it's also important to note the team that he committed to has changed, and this is an important part that needs to be discussed. When Ron Holland was talking about how excited he was to play Texas, part of it was the opportunity to play with another five-star named A.J. Johnson. He said publicly, me and him, you know, like every high school kid does when they, when they commit, me and him are going to Texas to win ourselves a national championship. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Go, you know, shoot for the stars, reach for your dreams. I got no problem with that. By the way, I sounded like a bad poster that you hang over your bed right there. Shoot for the stars, reach for your dreams. At the same time, like, like I have no problem with players wanting the best or believing they're going to achieve the best. But A.J. Johnson, about two, three weeks before Rod, Ron Holland decommitted from Texas, A.J. Johnson himself decommitted from Texas and announced that he's going to go play overseas in the one season rather than play college basketball, essentially his one-and-done season he's going to go. So you're not only going with a new coaching staff, you're not only going to have a completely new team almost, because remember, Marcus Carr is gone, Timmy Allen is gone, most of the key players off last year's um, – off last year's Elite Eight team are gone. You're also, the, the player that, that you plan on playing with isn't going to be there. So I can completely, forget tampering, I completely understand why Ron Holland is having second thoughts about going to Texas, especially when there's a lot of good alternatives out there. Arkansas is coached by a former NBA head coach. Eric Musselman has proven in a short amount of time that he can get guys to the NBA in one year. Did it with Anthony Black, with Nick Smith, Moses Moody, who's already an NBA champion. 
Oh, by the way, if there's other schools involved, you know, Mick Cronin has put guys in the pros, uh, Kentucky, John Calipari, G League Ignite, which I've talked about many times. Jason Hart runs that program. He was at USC forever. I know Jason Hart. That's a great player development guy, talent evaluation guy. He would do wonders with Ron Holland, and I have no doubt that he'd put him in position to have success and be drafted very high. So there's legitimate reasons why Ron Holland would decommit. And, and here's some other, some just some quick thoughts about this whole situation as well. One, do you understand how hard it is to prove that tampering actually happened? Because tampering isn't what I think a lot of people think it is, although I think most people have gotten smarter about tampering over the last couple of years. Tampering isn't an assistant coach from another school reaching out to your high school coach, your AAU coach, and just saying, hey, how are you? Like if I'm Aaron Torres, assistant coach at, let's say central Connecticut. I'm allowed to reach out to Ron Holland's high school coach and just say, what's up. I'm allowed to reach out to his um, high school coach, maybe a a parent. If I'm family or friends, I'm just not allowed to say, Hey, Ron Holland should decommit from this school and come play for me. Okay. There is a difference between listen, college basketball and college football and all recruiting is a relationship business. And so if I'm a, a um if I'm a, a assistant coach at say again let's just use a hypothetical Central Connecticut whatever and I uh, uh Ron Holland's high school coach he might have other players I might have coached some of his other guys I might be recruiting some of his other guys so it's perfectly normal for me to reach out and again to prove tampering you have to have it's 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 basically like the court of law you have to have indisputable proof that I reached out and I specifically said hey this player should decommit from this school and come play for me think it's going to be pretty hard to prove at that point. I would also add, even if you prove it, what ends up happening? Like, like if you actually prove tampering happened, you're still not getting the kid. So I'm not saying you shouldn't pursue it if you're Texas. I'm not saying you shouldn't look into it if you're Texas, but the kid isn't coming to you. I'm guessing he probably isn't going to help you very much. If he wants to go to Arkansas or Ignite or Kentucky or UCLA or whoever central Connecticut to play for your guy Torres. It's not like he's going to go to Texas and say, yeah, Torres reached out to me about three weeks ago. Here's the text message. No, he's gone and it's time to move on. And that's kind of what I'm thinking about. As I think about this is, you know, it's kind of a a little bit of a weak move by Texas to be so adamant about this. Again, I get it, but think about the negative recruiting that it could have going forward. Do you think Texas isn't going to recruit against all the schools that are recruiting Ron Holland right now? I think those schools aren't going to use that as negative recruiting against you going forward. Oh, you can commit to Texas, but if plans change, if things change, whatever, you better be darn sure because they're not going to let you out of the letter of intent. They're they're going to make sure that it's impossible for you to go anywhere else. Negative recruiting works a lot of different ways. And the last thought that I really kind of have on this, and I think this is an important one too. I'd just be careful if I was Texas about the tampering stuff because here's the thing. Did somebody probably tamper with Ron Holland? I think it's possible. But is it possible that Texas at some point since this portal thing became a thing has tampered with other people's players? I think that's possible as well. And I'm not accusing Texas of anything. What I am saying is this works every which way. Texas might be reaching out to the star player of your team, but your team, if it's a mid-major school, might be reaching out to the last guy on Texas's bench and saying, you're never going to play there. Come here. You can start for us right away. So the point I'm trying to make, tampering, it's a multi-way street. I've told this story on this podcast many times. 
But at the Final Four, Dustin May, or Dusty May, there's a Dustin May and a Dusty May. I always get him confused. But the head coach of Florida Atlantic, he kind of said in passing, like, yeah, play, people are reaching out to our players to see, you know, what they consider transferring. It became this big story. Oh, people are reaching out to Florida Atlantic's players. And he had to answer that question for about two, three days after. And he said, yeah, that's normal. Like, everybody does it. They're just reaching out to see, is there interest? Is there not? Is there this? Is there that? And so if I was Texas, just be careful. You throw stones at a glass house. Make sure your own house is in order as well. So ultimately, I have no real fundamental issue with Texas kind of just looking in, making sure there's, but I don't know what you're going to, I don't think you're going to find definitive proof. Ron Holland still isn't coming. He ain't helping you even if he does. And it's important to know, Texas, I love you. Ronnie Terry, I love you. I went to bat for you, Ronnie Terry, but there are legitimate reasons why this kid would decide to decommit from Arkansas or from Texas and commit to either Arkansas, G League Ignite, or whatever. All right, I think that's it for this episode of the Air Tour Sports Podcast. Uh, before we get out of here, want to make sure that you are subscribed to this podcast, the Air Tours Pod, Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Music, wherever you listen to podcasts, make sure you're subscribed. By the way, if it's mid-May, I'm still rocking. If this ain't proof why you got to be subscribed, I don't know what is. But if you're not subscribed, make sure to do so. Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Music, wherever you listen to podcasts, make sure you're subscribed. Also, make sure to rate and review the show. Go ahead, give us a quick five stars. Let us know what you like, what you don't like, all that good stuff. Make sure you're following on social media, at Aaron underscore Torres on Twitter, at Aaron Torres Pod on Instagram, Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com, Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com. That is all for today's show. It is time for me to get out of here. Thank you, guys and girls, for your support. And I'll be back on Friday. Shout out to Torrent Craig. Shout out to Rachel, who hates my voice. Shout out to JJ Reddick. You F-head unblock me, bro. I'll be back on Friday. New episode, Aaron Torres Bob.